out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we'd love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the English singer-songwriter and multi-instrumentalist. It is the one and only... Timon Dog, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff, has had an exciting and interesting solo career. In fact, his 1982 album Battle of Wheels is going to be coming out on Tiny Global Records. And this is going to also feature a bonus album of six studio and seven live tracks um, that, as I said, I'll put in the notes below, has also worked with lots of people, including Jimmy Page, John Paul Jones, uh, The Moody Blues, Paul McCartney and Joe Strummer, and he knew members of The Clash and all that kind of exciting stuff. Anyway, look, this is the interview. You're going to find out everything and much more. So after several minutes of interest and but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was really the early formative years, the musical awakening. Anyway, Timon, this is over to you. Let me think now. Um, I was I was very aware of music as a child, you know. I mean, I remember learning all the words of El Paso. I think it was by Marty Robbins. I wasn't sure who sang it, but... Um, I still learned all the words. I, I don't. Have you ever heard of it? It's a cowboy song. No, I haven't actually. No, it's it's very lyrical, and I suppose when I look back, I think of learning that at about six or seven, and I was very aware of the um, people like the Beverly Brothers, you know, with the the kind of harmonies and, and some of the some of the way that Kathy's clown things like that. Yes. So I suppose, but obviously by the time. Uh, I was like I was born in 1950. Yeah. So by the time um, the Beatles got into their stride, I'd be about the same age as you were when David Bowie sort of hit the scene. Yes, this is very true. Actually, you were that perfect age. It's it's a bit like is it the Philip Larkin poem um, about 19? Well, the 60s started in 63 with Le- Lady Chatterley's Lover and the first Beatles album, something like that. So the never no, de- decades don't completely. I didn't know that line. That's that Philip Larkin line, is it? Yes, Philip, dear old Philip Larkin. He always had a good way with, uh, and it was kind of true, wasn't it? You know, a decade doesn't really start exactly on the O. It mo- often has a few years to get going before you get a sense of it. So um, the 60s is definitely... So you would have been 13 in 63, which was a informative well, period. Were your parents at all kind of um, artistic, musical, creative? Not really, but my dad was always, like, getting instruments and leaving... <laughs> like, he, he got me a guitar of six, you know, um, uh, because he, he he was a commercial traveller and he was selling drugs. I mean, to pharmaceuticals. Pharmaceutical drugs, <laughs> right? Chemists. Uh, but he, he, one time he he called me in because um, one of the lads had a guitar, you know, a teenager, and we sat and listened to him. This was somebody he was selling something to, and um, I think he noticed my interest, so he got me a guitar. Well, like I say, he got me the I was about six, right? And and also then he got piano, f- and, and I said, well, that, it was out of tune. And he got another one, you know, so he was doing that all the time. And then well, as soon as I started playing a bit, um, I said, well, I can't remember what I, if I wrote something. He, he, the tape recorder would appear, you know. So I, I look back and I think, oh, you know, 
that was really nice that he did that because he he wasn't getting much, you know. I was trying to work out what that tape recorder must have cost him to get that, you know. Yes. And I worked out it was the best part of a grand, you know. Wow. <laughs> In today's money. <laughs> yes, that was a lot, wasn't so, uh, it, really? So I suppose he wasn't musical, but he had incredible... Um, he knew something was happening there. He knew there was some freedom there. Yes. I mean, after, you know, because he was like... I'd, Don Kirk veteran, he was, you know, been doing all that Second World War stuff. So by 1950, he knew we couldn't go back there. And this was, I think this was a great influence on the people. Each generation has a, a thing that they particularly have. Um, it's, it's, be, it's difficult now. I was talking to somebody recently, uh, she was about, I don't know, she was about 21 or something. And so it's kind of difficult for your generation, you know, because it's like, uh, what's, what's like, um, Randy Newman, he said, people ask how you get into the uh, showbiz, and he said, it's a bit like people asking you how to get in, break into a bank that's already been robbed. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I, I think with each generation, you think, oh, they're going to try and probably, I don't know, follow, but then they go on a completely different path and things that they're kind of interested in. You think, oh, no, I'm not at all aware of that. I think... Yeah, yeah. well, maybe I'm not aware of something really amazing happening. I mean, I go out... I don't mind. I mean, I don't... I, I have great faith in humanity, so... Um, and, I, and I know that no matter how good anybody is, they don't hang around past about 100, so... I know that's that's what the game is. Um, these days with AI, so you can sort of say, oh, you know, write us a, write us a song about this. I, 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 none of my songs have been written by AI. <laughs> but, I mean, I'm amazed at what what comes out, you know. If you, um, I was, me, me and my wife were, when it, you know, a few months ago, we were going like, oh, sort of write a song about being stood up, you know. <laughs> I was amazed that... Um, how, how it will do that. And, of course, a lot of people will, will not want to have anything to do with it. But there's always going to be somebody lazy enough, just like auto-tuning, okay? So instead of singing in tune, you get the engineer to put your voice in tune, put it in time, you know? Yes. So you can sing out of tune, out of time, and there you are. Yeah, well, absolutely. <laughs> and, they'll do it, and they'll do it for your life. I know. I so, know. I mean... So how, you know, so you can always say, oh, well, that's missing something doing that. But then if you don't know what's missing, are you missing anything? So it's it's hard. We, you know, we, we but I, I go back to, I mean, my, my personal music, right, is, is, is basically folk music. You know, that's what, so because it went back, it just went back to that, to somebody just getting an instrument and expressing themselves. Yes. That was what I saw the whole rock music as. I saw David Bowie as that too. Yeah. Well, he, he had a very folk influence to begin with, and also he was into a lot of quite avant-garde bands and artists and performance artists. I know I knew somebody who was the daughter of Bruce Lacey who used to do these kind of interesting sort of performance pieces, rituals at fairs and festivals, and um, his daughter said that, um, you know, David Bowie would come along to some of these in the sort of six, late 60s, or yeah, and was kind oh, of fascinated yeah. with that world. And also I think there was yes, people like... I mean, well, I think 
any everybody knew that because we we were used to something we didn't know coming around the corner. So we had to have an open mind. Yes, absolutely. And we still have that. <laughs> and we're waiting for something that sort of knocks us off our chair a little bit, you know, because no matter how old you are, you still like to be knocked off your chair by something. <laughs> yes, this is true. And did... also, if you if you did witness certain things happening. But, I mean, I used to be down the cavern, you know, when I was 14, 15. And I'm... I didn't really, you know, it was difficult to be able to see really what was going on. And I was, you're saying, oh, that was a great A, good age to be. But I was, by the time I'd done certain things, I was only, say, 16 or 17, I wasn't, I wasn't capable at that age to be able to put it into context. What does that mean? What do you mean context? Well, say by the time I was 23, I could put certain things into context of how much work it, it, that you've, you've done to, to, to keep your own focus going, to keep yourself on your own rail. I mean, um, you, and, and you know why you are instinctively doing things. But when you're very young, you sort of don't understand the games going on. And you, you certainly don't understand the business side of anything. No. You don't realise that it is called the music business. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, uh, and now sometimes the music becomes a very small part of the music business. Yes. Sometimes the music is massive and the business is non-existent. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you get sort of that sort of ideology, that, that balance going on. But the survival of something takes, takes quite a lot to keep going. Yes, I think you have to be quite smart as certain artists and people. You know, you can see it from people like, I suppose, the, you know, from, from the 60s, people like the Rolling Stones kind of got their act together. You know, not quickly, but they eventually got there and understood the business. And bands like you too in the 80s certainly understood the business and, the, and keeping it together and probably being quite practical as if it was... Yeah, they, I think they also realised, I don't know about the Rolling Stones so much, but certainly some of the bands from the 80s um, started sharing out the songwriting royalties because that's where so much of the money comes from. And if you've got, like, one guy in the band, you know, becoming a millionaire, and the rest sort of on, on like, you know what I mean, just a wage or something, or just little a little tiny bit, it becomes really unfair. And also, when, when a song is recorded... Um, people, and a guitar player or somebody might do something. There's just a lot for that song. Yes. And um, if they're not, you know, properly credited for what they've done. I mean, the Kinks are a good example of that. I mean, some of the things uh, Dave Davis was doing on his guitar were really, uh, phenomenal. You know what I mean? It was, and yet, you know, the, it, the song was written by Ray Davis. I do, I do think that's great. But I think the bands of the eighties seem to realise. Look, if we want to keep the band going, we can't have, we can't have a, like a, a class system in the place. You know what I mean? Some people millionaires, and other people like just just getting by. Yeah, well, I think that's still the case with people like Mick Ronson, who was with Bowie for quite a few years. I mean, without him, he wouldn't have had the, that early success and possibly any other success doing what he'd That's been I did work with Mick we, we did I don't know you, do you remember that Ian Hunter record called 
for sure back inside. Yes, I do. Well, there's a song there called China. I'm playing on that. And I'm playing on, I think, something else. Old records don't never die. And because um, Mick Jones was producing it with Mick Ronson. And I was in the studio and I, I kept saying, who did that? Who did that? And, and they'd always go, oh, Mick, that's Mick. Who's playing that piano? Mick, you know. So and when we, we went off and worked on China, he, he wanted me to play some viola. But he, he was great. He was great, Mick, because he didn't... What I felt from him was he never just took it that whatever happened, there was always a mystery in it. So he didn't take it for granted that he knew what was going to go happen, and that would be it. For instance, when we came in after working on this, we were in another part of the student of, of the uh, studio, and um, he said, is it any good? And Mick went, um, I don't know, we've just done it. And Ian was like, oh, for God's sake, you know, we can't, <laughs> you know. And I, but I, I knew exactly where Mick Ronson was coming from. Yes, absolutely. Now, one time I met him before that, and he said he'd been writing something. Um, he'd been writing some words or something. And I said, what about it? He said, I don't know. And I just sort of, <laughs> I, I just really, he was a lovely bloke and sort of just so kind of, I don't know, he just sort of was like letting the music take him. I guess it was. It would be very. I mean, I've done a few interviews with people, like, as an example, Chris Spedin, who performed on so many artists and bands and and classic album uh, songs that we know, like the Harry Nilsson one. You know, I can't live if living is without you. Yeah, and you I said, that. when you when you when you were in the studio and you did that recording, did you think it was going to be amazing? He said, no, not at all. The songs that you think are, are amazing aren't, or they just get forgotten. And the ones that you think, well, that was all right, a bit of a knockoff, and it just becomes this kind of classic, if you're lucky, that is. So um, Yeah, yeah, that, that, that is. I mean, uh, I've not been around many things like that, but a few things. And they're always like, you, you don't think they're, they're that good. Well, you just think they're all right. Yes, and then one day you think, "Oh, that's that just captured the moment, really, didn't it?" Yeah, well, I and I think right. I think with... I, I, I keep I stay with my guns. Now they're still just all right. <laughs> I mean, I don't think massive. This is the problem. Sort of massive uh, acclaim doesn't always equal how great something is. But so, but at the same time, it doesn't mean everything. The majority of people or seem to be affected by and think's great or a lot of people do, it can still be brilliant as well. So I think they're both sort of little corners that you, you can't get in. Cause yes. Because something is um, um, very uh, um, uncommercial doesn't mean it's good. No. And something that's very commercial doesn't make it bad. No, this is it's, true. It's intrinsically what it is as a piece of work. But and it... also what how the people are doing something. Yes. And I th and I think on that point is always interesting. Every five years someone tries to make a documentary, you know, on the music and they get you know, to make that classic song, what is a cla you know, what makes it a classic song that we'll remember for years and years. So they'll get a fantastic producer in the kind of the the new kind of whiz person like i don't know mark ronson then they'll get these amazing musicians amazing studio singers they get the writers of the time 
and they put it all together and then you watch this documentary and they get to the end they they play that song that they've been working on the cla- you know they've got all the ingredients they've all got this amazing cv and you think god this is the most boring song i've ever heard it, it's it's <laughs> it's functional it's dysfunctional well but, I'm, are you glad or are you disappointed i bet you're glad knowing I'm, you yes from what i've heard i listened to your radio show with Stuart lee on it <laughs> and uh and uh I, I sort of could get the gist because it's an interesting side. I mean, you, there were some Smiths on there, there was some REM, and it's a sort of area of music, right, of rock music, which is not is is not sort of seen so much. For instance, some like, some like the Birds. Take a, the Birds as a band that was around when I was in my fifteen, okay, and some of the stuff they did. But where that sort of goes into the future, where something like something that was heavy and relatively grotesque sort of went, it knew where it was going. It was going towards heavy metal, and and some of that, and that, and that was like Hendrix and stuff. But it's 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 hard as to define that very subtle, uh, melodic, and sort of slightly whimsical, and um, which I always had a. A great deal of um, I, I I had a soft spot for that. You know? <laughs> yes, I always liked, and I think John Peel had the same attitude that enjoying listening to people playing instruments that they seemed like they weren't quite in control of them, but they could kind of just rein them back just at that moment that they needed to, and bring it back to to. To something, but it was almost it was it was out of control. And you can see when a band or artist are just they're doing that classic period of their life, and then years later they try and do it again. But it just the stars don't quite line up, do they? That energy does isn't quite there again. And it's like yeah, you have people have moments, don't they? And I I think with people like Hendrix and possibly the Birds and the Smiths, the Smiths were my favourite band in the eighties. What one of them? Well, and again. Yeah. They, 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 you know, the ingredients all came together and there was something magical. But you know now, I mean, they wouldn't for various reasons, got back together and said, look, you know, you've got six months to, rec- you know, to make this album again. The disappointment would be enormous, wouldn't it? Because you think, well, it doesn't have it, does it? It's just not got that well, magic. I think that fear was probably one of the reasons The Clash never went back together. It was a fear for Joe that... Um, because when they did their albums, they they really they were just sort of you know just feeling around, just doing well not any well more or less yeah they were by by Sand Initiative they were doing like anything. I mean I mean, I was in New York at the time. I just I was there on my own trip, and um, that's when I got involved. But I, I remember seeing this um, steel drum guy uh, playing Bach and stuff, you know. Because uh, the buskers were very high standard, incredible, yes. and uh, and I think you know they they'd sort of grab him in to do a track or something. So it, it was sort of like if it moved, you know, get it. They would they would they just knew that they had to just open their heads to to everything. Yes, this is true, and that was um, yes, and obviously side was it five side six? You know, is still one of those kind of. Uncharted well, territory. One of them was a ba- was a piece of music backwards, which, <laughs> meant, which you know was going a bit a bit too far. <laughs> a seven minute piece of music that was another song backwards. Yes. <laughs> and I went in and said, "That sounds like 
that's something about England, backwards. And he went, oh, you're the first person who's noticed. I said, well, I was playing on it. I'm in mean, my, my violin coming out backwards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I do remember, I think it was a, um, a member of a band like Darts who were, I think they were neighbours or they they sort of just stumbled upon... Mick Jones probably, and sort of appeared on one of the Clash albums. But again, that kind of moment. Darts. Darts. The, you know, the, um, the band with Bob Fishing, because he was yes. a very good friend of mine until he, he, he just died last year. Um, is that that's the same band, is it? Yeah, I think it was Darts. They were like a doo-wop band, weren't they? Yeah, one of those bands that you thought, really, that's amazing. I know Mick Jones also did a... Uh, kind of work with a member, the woman who sung with Meatloaf as well, which I must admit... Oh, Ellen Foley. Yes, I think he... Yeah, he... I, I worked on her album with, with Mick. Yeah, OK. Cause and that, that was all part of the Ian Hunter-Mick Ronson trip. Right. Because she was... I think she might have been managed by is it Tony DeFries or somebody. Yeah. She was she was involved anyway with, with um, some of that those people. And... Um, then she got involved with Mick Jones. Yes. And, and he, he then they, the Clash, when the Clash were going big, they met various people. And uh, Mick did a whole album with Ellen. I don't know you ever heard it, did you? I listened to bits I think of it. It was called uh, something St. Louis. Yes. I, I, I think it was one of those ones. No. I. I would have come across it because I did this interview with her recently when she was putting an album out of, of new material, but it wasn't quite that amazing. So I haven't, I haven't seen her for years. I mean, really, back you're talking about the early eighties. Yes, and uh, she she came to a gig of mine with Mick, and and they um, she wanted to get as many of my songs on her album. She got three of them on, uh, but um, I. I thought it was okay, you know, it was okay, but it, I just knew that I'd been working on a thing for quite a long time. Yeah. And, um, and you know, it, it was different than other people's, you know, for, obviously, because I realised that was very important. Um, but when, when somebody said, well, well, let's do... And I, I thought, well, I... The point of this, if it changes, you know what I mean, if it changes its sound and that, but but I was very um, I was very grateful to both Mick and her for her you know for their, their enthusiasm and their encouragement uh, of what I was doing. That was in the early eighties in New York. Yes, absolutely. Oh look, just before we 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 trundle too far into the eighties, just going back to when you hit sixteen, which would have been nineteen sixty six. England yeah. won the World Cup, and it was a year before the Summer of Love, which obviously everyone got very excited about. Well, at least twenty people in London. Um, well, did you leave school at that point in your life? Yeah, yeah, I left school straight away. I mean, uh, I was in the in that in. I was 15, right, and I went back. I'd already started playing gigs, you know, like I, I was playing places you might not have heard of them. It was places like Peppermint Lounge. I, I did a, a weekly gig there, and I got some gigs at the Cavern. Bob Wooler was still getting people gigs. Bob Wooler was a guy who, and all these basically people who'd still there from when the Beatles had made it. Yes. I mean, Bob Wooler was one of their first managers before Epstein. And... Uh, they were like in in that at that time it was um there was a strange feeling because the Beatles were so enormous that 
the idea of, of this being the, it's like you go back to somewhere where something has happened and you're sort of working in that, like you work in the same clubs and there might be some other p- people like, I remember sometimes playing, going somewhere and some of Jerry and the pacemakers would be there, do you know what I mean? Yes. Uh, but when you look back and you realise that it, it, it had blown, it was like a balloon that had blown up so quickly. What was your question, David? I'm sorry. Yes, when you, when you hit, <laughs> you hit 16. <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of in the Peppermint Lounge. You were in the Peppermint Lounge, actually. <laughs> and, uh, yes, and, and uh, the cabin. Yeah, so you hit... Somebody that, Maguire who You left piano, school, school at 16. The Summer of Love was kind of literally around the corner and we were all yeah. going to tune in, turn on and drop out and go to the 14-hour Technicolor Dream. Oh, you asked me about school. Yes. Well, like... Well, when I came back after the holidays, and I, you know, and I, my head had got big, I couldn't get through the school door. <laughs> I, I was sort of teachers, and I hadn't had a haircut either, so I was like, you know, enjoying having, you know, the big locks flowing around, you know. And so the headmaster said, oh, "Come here, you, you know," and took took me into a room. This was a school in um, in the Merseyside, you know, um, Liverland, some of that. And um, he said, listen, you either get your hair cut or you go home, right? And uh, so I went back into class, and then a few days later, he, t- he came in, and he said, I told you something, didn't I? And then I said, yeah. He said, you get your hair cut or you go home. And I said, when you put it like that, I think I'll go home. <laughs> so I just sort of left and never went back. Right. So that's it. And so I went back and I, I sort of carried on doing these little gigs and doing, you know, obviously I had to explain to my parents why I wasn't going to school anymore. So I, I got a job doing various things. It were oh, just anything, you know. I ended up in a, an art studio learning how to screen print. And that, and that was quite good. I quite liked that. Yes. Um, and somebody sent off demos of mine or something. And then the next thing is, I, I don't know if you heard that Bitter Thoughts of Little Jane. Mm, it came out in 19, uh, came out in January 1968. He'd had, he'd had um, what, what's his name? He'd had two of Led Zeppelin, Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones. Oh, yes, this Jimmy is... Page makes, does a great guitar solo on it. Because I'd written that just on the guitar, you know? Yes. And, um, and that, that, they are really quintessential 60s pieces of music. Uh, the, the Bitter Thoughts of Little Jane is amazing. The way it was recorded, the way it was done, it was a Canadian guy called Jerry Martin who wrote the whole thing out. And I didn't play the guitar on it at all. I, they just put my voice on it after they, they'd sort of done all that. It, they'd done it all on basically two tracks. Yes. And then they had two tracks spare for me to you know, put some vocals on. Uh, and, and at the time, I was sort of slightly embarrassed about it because it was kind of poppy and then, you know, the way it goes now. But Paul McCartney heard it and wanted to redo it. Amazing. You know, he, he said, oh, I think that's a, that's a hit song. And I liked, and I was like, I'd already done two versions for Pi, one with, um, you know, uh, Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones and, and these, you know, people on it, people who then became Blue Mink were on it as well. 
it was a very it was a very small scene in the sixties. I would and, imagine. And like I say, if I'd have been, had a bit more nous and everything, I'd have been able to see what was going on. For instance, like Ireland was setting up. You know, the Ireland the record. Yes, company. Chris Blackmore. And I, I was sort of by that time I was a bit tired of. I'd been I'd gone to Pi and then I was sort of taken somewhere else and recorded. And because I was I was young, you know, I was seventeen, and they thought I had commercial potential, but I was just concentrating on what, on the songs and what I was doing, and also trying to develop as a human being. Yes, it's incredibly um, young, actually. I mean, at the time you think you know everything, but when you meet a seventeen-year-old now, you just think, "Blimey, you are so young." But yes, and fresh face. So obviously, you had a kind of musical chops at this stage, because I. Because Jimmy Page had obviously done lots of session work, hasn't he? It's kind of kind of been. Yeah, he was on. It's not. It's not such a big thing, really. It's just that the record, when this record, the bit thought of Little Jane, is actually really. For years, I, I didn't have a copy. Didn't want anything to do with it. But now, when I hear what they actually did, and they recorded all that in one room, all just going off, and we did four songs, four songs in three hours. Yes, blimey, that was um, that's that's the good old days for you, isn't it? Really, but yeah. So you did the, the A side was obviously bitter thoughts of little Jane, and then Rambling Boy on the B side. Yeah, all you wanted the Rambling Boy was on on the other side. Rambling Boy, I was a bit. I think surely I could think of something better than that because it was like the folky kind of thing. Every other song called Rambling Boy. Yes, because <laughs> it was kind of it was kind of interesting listening to David Bowie's sixties stuff because. You know, if it didn't, if it wasn't for his next period, we would have just kind of, yeah, it would have just become a bit of a cult. It quirk. was well, his manager was sitting in the studio when I was recording with Jerry, and he was sitting there with an album with I, I, I didn't know it was Bowie or Bowie. I saw his the, the picture, and it was that one with Lovey Till Tuesday. Oh yes, it, yes. it was his first manager. Was it Ken Pitt? I don't know what his name was. But yes. Jerry said to me, "Oh, this guy's um, managing this guy, and he's got a he's done a record. On, was it on DRAM or something like that? Yeah, that's right. Yes, and on um, Decker or something. And um, I just thought, oh, you know, because um, the London scene was very strange in the mid to late '60s, because all this influence was coming in from America, but um, England didn't know how really to record a singer songwriter." Yes. It was a problem. And I'd go into the studio, and, and instead of just getting on with it, they sort of wanted to make it sound like the monkeys or something else. And they didn't realise that there was this thing going to happen in the early 70s, where I mean, obviously Cat Stevens started doing his work a different way. Neil. And there was Neil Young. James Taylor worked on the tracks, um, was working with Apple, and he came to work on it because... He saw my, when we were sitting around with guitars, he'd just go, oh, Timon's doing his songs, you know. And he'd, he'd look at the, what the, the song, not what we were trying to do with it. And um, he, he was very, he was um, really, he, he just loved things for what they were. And when we were in the studio, um, he'd borrowed John Lennon's uh, white guitar and he was playing away on it. And then the next song we started and... Um, Peter, Peter Asher, who's a good guy and a good producer, and I'm really, it's really nice that they, they had me there at all, but 
he was going like, oh, you can't, you know, Chime's going to be a pop singer. But we, James, stop, don't play the guitar like that. And James got it and threw it in his guitar case. Well, he didn't break it with drums. <laughs> and he, he storms out, you know. And I was like, I, but like I say, I didn't have, the, he had the nous to do that on my session. <laughs> <laughs> and then he came round, you know, a few days later, because I, I was staying in, in uh, Weymouth Street in Melbourne. And he said, oh, have you got the tracks? And there was something we couldn't, we couldn't listen. And he was, um, I, and you think, what, we'd done three tracks. We'd done um, uh, Nice Session Young, something new every day, and Who Needs a King? And, and he said to me, I think, I think you're right about like, the, the King song, you know? Who Needs a King? Because I wanted to do that, and the others were like, oh, I don't know about that, you know? <laughs> yes. But the whole thing about singer-songwriters, uh, I'm sure... Bowie was going through these sort of things as well in his own way. But there was no real English way that the Americans, they, they knew what to do with Tim Buckley, Tim Harden, uh, Tom Rush. They sort of seemed to know what to add and what to leave. Yeah. The English people, the producers, they just didn't get it. They still thought they were recording Vera Lynn. <laughs> I guess it was tricky. Yeah, because they went I went around it the same way. I know this is this is not going to happen because people like Richie Havens, I suppose, was hard. He was quite unknown. Or then you went to the other extreme, which was kind of Bert Yanks and um, Davy Graham yes, and people that, like that. Was something, but I don't know what year that was happening. I think that was around the similar time, wasn't it? 67. Yeah, that's right. But did you go to people yeah. like Joe Boyd's, you know, um, I don't know, U- oh, yeah, UFO? Oh, convention. Did you, did yeah. you get into yeah, things exactly like the right. IT, International Times, and Oz, and, and that kind of counterculture? Was that something that you were aware of and became kind of yes, intrigued very by? very much so. Yes. And, I, and I was very annoyed if, if, like, I think, well, Nick Drake's been recorded as Nick Drake. They're not trying to make him into Herman's Hermit. <laughs> no. So I was sort of, um, it was probably just, but it, I can't blame it on anything because your life is ultimately your your dream. Yes. You know, and, and things are going on and, and you use this at this time and you, you know, you just, have, but the thing is, I, I, I'm still making records and I'm still writing songs and that's, that's and I, I consider that's, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to just carry. I wanted to have a life working at the craft of, of songs and music, and and also the mystery is still there. Yes, me, well, the mystery of music is still there. You know the the, the mechanics of it. I could work all that out, but without this mystery, which is sort of like the ghost of. Of, of, and the soul of it that is there, and unless that is there, I don't really feel it's music. I feel music is is this bridge between the seen and unseen. Yes, absolutely. between the heard and the unheard. I know the magical place. It's the magical moments. And if we take that out of it and just make it into a sort of like, oh, we're making a chair. And we we put four legs on it, <laughs> and so. But even a chair, you know, a chair can have some soul. I mean, there's a difference between a, um, a well-made, you know, a sort of 
a chair that's made with love and a chair that's just made, it might as well be anything, you know? That's <laughs> right. So as we, as we, I mean, as when the, yeah, when the 60s finished, it was a bit of a downer, wasn't it? We, you know, there was the death of Hendrix Morrison, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, Brian Jones had died the year before. There was obviously quite a lot of casualties at this stage. And also we'd had Altamont and um, things were got a bit, messy what was it like for you because you you were sort of 20 at this stage you know the new decade had come along and people as we mentioned David Bowie had had sort of fudged around with a bit of Anthony Newley a bit of folk didn't really work he went into a different world especially with Angie Bowie appearing and Tony DeFries and and became and Mick Ronson obviously what what about your own direction as the 70s progressed yeah well I started I went on this you know, um, just a nationwide tour, you know, uh, with with the Moody Blues, because the Moody Blues were the, you know, on, on the tailcoats of the Beatles, they'd also built th- their own thing, you know, they'd done Tales of Future, I can't, is it Lost Chord was one, and, and they'd had a fair amount of success, and they were they were putting in LPs at number ones. Yes. Um, in the charts. They had about two or three of them. And I was being recorded by Justin Hayward, and um, I it was it was good. And I knew this thing was coming round the corner. I knew that the Neil Young, J- James Taylor, who had sort of disappeared after he'd been an Apple, but he was about to arise again after his album in that he did um, in America, and then and Carol King and all all that sort of singer songwriter thing was was ready to come from from mostly America. Um, but I knew this cynicism. I, 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 I felt the cynicism, the fact that uh, it wasn't... The, the hippie dream was, could only roll on, on somebody's wallet, if you see what I mean. Yes. It wasn't... It couldn't really work that well. And then I, I left the whole thing and went off with a bunch of students and one of them being Joe Strummer, right? And uh, and he wasn't really in in in. He wasn't in. You know, he was into music, but he he, he didn't play anything or anything. And um, and I liked the freedom of the way these these people were who weren't in the music business because everything I'd done from about fifteen to twenty was all around this thing of trying to get this so-called hit, which I actually didn't want to hit, that I would be scared to play to my friends. <laughs> you know what I mean? That was the thing. I thought, well, okay, you need maybe, you know, you need you can't be unknown, you can't make nothing, but and that's why I, I took up busking for a while, because I thought this will be a freedom. I took up the violin, which I didn't play, but I, 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 I thought I'll, I'll use this time to practice yes. and, and develop something new. Because developing something new was the, the buzz for me, and it still is. Yes. Developing new things is, is, is for me still the, the magic of, of not knowing quite how or why you did something. Yeah, and did you feel also at that stage that you were on that point, not completely alone, seeing people like there was Keith Christmas on one side, you know, 
experimenting. Yeah, I, I did a gig with with Keith Christmas. Yeah, and there was uh, kind of yeah. Nick Nick Drake as well, sort of. With Nick his, Drake. I never did a gig with Nick Drake, but I, I was very aware of his stuff, Pink Moon, and and various other things he was doing. Yes, I'd be. So, I think he was very carefully handled, but I think did Joe Boyd do some of his stuff? He produced him for quite a few of his albums, if not all did he? of them. Yeah, yeah. I think without a producer like that, I think uh, just the average singer-songwriter, you need a producer that really gets gets what you're doing and works out a way of make, keeping you happy and the the record company. But if you've got like, if you don't have that middleman, yes, it's like I mean, producers like that are like uh, midwives. Yeah, they're your your guide and light, really, aren't they? Well, yeah, they they really they they know when things aren't going to work because they know your sensitivities are going to make you dig in your heels or even just run away like I did, <laughs> just disappear. <laughs> I know. But then it's you, so you met Joe at that stage. Was that kind of 70, did you say you were in London? 71. 71, so that was kind of, so was this your squatting period in, in London? No, not really. It was before that. We, R- we, were, we were all um, trying to get £25, <laughs> which was the rent for a, for a house. We were all chipping in. Right, um, and, and I, I just went there to, you know, somebody invited me to basically sleep on a, f- a floor, and um, and at the same time, I was I was like doing radio things for Radio One, you know, Sound of the Seventies, so I'd be on the radio, but I still wasn't, I wasn't sure whether uh, by that time, I knew that the if you like the average person or the 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 person that had been treated like a fool, I knew they had a lot more vision and a lot more sincerity. And I didn't think the business, particularly in England, was giving them the respect they deserved. So I was more bothered when I did something that the friends I had (laughs) were going to think it was okay (laughs) than anything else. So when I was on the radio, I was like, you know, really kind of thinking, oh, God, you know. They're listening to it. <laughs> yes, this could this could be. Yeah. But to some extent, they were kind of like pretty impressed there. If you're on Radio One, you know, they were thinking because there were some nice. Bob Harris used to run a nice show there, and he was very open to um, people. You know, he, he was very open to, to my work, and he'd say, "Oh, time have you got written a new song? Do you want to do it?" And he he just put it on the radio, and that that was fantastic. But that was. That was rare. Let's yeah. put it out. It was very rare. And what about John Peel? Did he? Did he? John Peel didn't have much to do with John Peel. He didn't like the Moody Blues, and I think he thought because I'd done a tour with them, because he gave me a lift once. He um, he picked me up on the road when I was hitchhiking up to Liverpool, and he I never really I didn't I, the, John John had his own agenda, you know, and then he got into the slits, and I I was living with them, you know, in a house. So he, he, he was like, he, I don't know, I think he thought I was just going around having this really great time. He was always said, every six time I'm having a, a, you know, drinking with Joe Strummer, having a good time. But, but I'm not, I'm just driving home. 
I respected him and everything, but I don't know what his I don't know what his trip was really, because the problem was that he was like the valve of the BBC, and if you didn't get the go ahead from him, it was very hard to get any other sort of outlet. Yes, because he became the only outlet, and although it was very good, you know, and he did a great job. I don't want to sort of just knock him about it. But because he did that, he sort of, and he had prejudices. This is the thing, like, he had prejudices, like, and he sometimes, um, those prejudices would not sort of, I mean, when, when give you an example, when, um, when uh, what do you call him, Mark Bolan. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, yeah. He started out on the, I don't know who's on the Dandelion label, but, he was a big mate of John Peel, and he used to go and do gig songs with him. And then when T-Rex took off, you know, Tony Visconti producing those records and that, he kind of was sort of like a bit down on Mark, you know what I mean? Yes, there was, there was a and lot when, of... And, one, and I don't know whether this was just a paper, this evening standard, but when he died, he said, what did he say? Well, he was already dead, as far as I was concerned, something like that. And I just thought, look... What is this crap, you know? Yeah, I know that was. I mean, the guy's got a son, he's got a, his wife, and and also Mark has got his, he's he's on this, that, and the other. It's not time to to be bitter about something, whatever it was. I don't know, but John was a complex guy. He was a complex man, and um, I like I said, I spent a few hours driving in a car with him. And he, he was he was upset about this and he's upset about that. And when I looked back and I thought, oh, I should have just gone with him wherever he was going, you know. Yes. Because he was annoyed that nobody wanted to come go to where he was going to um, Mothers in Birmingham, and he, he was annoyed that nobody had, had wanted to come with him. Yeah. And and it, really, that's just what I'm talking about, David. If you have more now, if I had more now. I'd have gone. Okay, I'll come with you, John, <laughs> and and sort of, uh, sort of go on some of the the gigs. You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. No, but I didn't. I just said, oh, oh, I'm doing the album hall with the Moody Blues and jumped out the car. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that must have gone down terribly. And also, I was grateful that he stopped his. He was actually in a Volkswagen uh, camper van thing. Right. So I, I was very grateful he stopped it to to pick me up. You know. Yes. So look. As as we trundled happily through the seventies, you know, you got to the mid seventies, um, and people like I did an interview with Richard Strange from the Doctors of Madness. Oh yeah, I know Richard. And he said that um, when he came along, he was like two years too early for punk, but everybody in the audience kind of became you know like part of the punk scene. And then you obviously, when you brought your first album out, which was self titled on Outlaw Records, yeah. this was seventy six. Yes. Were you, you were still sort of very much still sort of focusing on sort of the acoustic kind of soundscapes at this stage, weren't you? Sort yes, of yes, yes, I had very little to do. And that album, I had the idea of that album when I was, I was, I was going to the Albert Hall to support the Moody Blues in 1969. Yes. And I wanted to do a, an album with uh, like, you know, Sh- uh, Shorms and that. And I got a four track, um, like a, you know, before the TIAC was around, I got a, an Ampex 4-track. I, I knew a guy had one, and we took it up to my room. But, you know, I didn't know anything about compression and reverb and, or, you know, real recording. So 
I mean, it's a peculiar album. I'm not. I'm not sure I can hear it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never sure I can hear anything once I've done it. Yes, I think um, this is probably true of most people who writes. I don't know books or. Yes, academics, people, you know, my, all just want to hear themselves. I know Neil Young would say that was it. I think Woody, get, Woody Allen sort of said the same about his film. So I think you just sort of, you're so embroiled in it, that was, it would just be too much. So when that came out, did you tour it at all? Did you sort of, were no, you... No, the thing, thing was, David, when I did that album, I'd sort of gone through this thing from, if you like, from the late 60s, from, you know, my first gig in London that I can remember doing was in the Albert Hall, right? Yes. To 6,000 people while I was doing a solo set before the Moody Blues came on. And I was very well received, partly because they wanted to encourage this poor guy on his own. <laughs> yeah, I was only 19, but I was 19, which, which yes. I felt quite old by that time. And um, so coming from that, right, and then... And then doing some busking and travelling through Europe. I, I went to Berlin and I worked quite a lot there. Yes. Because you could go to that town in 1973, for instance, and there was three clubs in the centre of Berlin. And you'd go in and you'd... It was, it was like an open mic. And the guys would get out their diary immediately and put you in so many gigs for... For like, like so, I can. I think I remember one was called the Folk Pub, one was called the Steve Club, and I, and one was called the Going. So I do remember them, those three clubs. Yeah. And they get out the things, and you just and you could put like three gigs in one night. So you'd only be doing half hour sets. Yeah. So they would just have all. They might have a guy singing to a double bass. I remember there's another guy called Mohammed who did a whole concert just on one um, Persian ta tabla. Yeah. And it was so entertaining that he could do it, you know. And so he'd, he'd be doing it. So he, so the town was really creative. And, and that was great for me because I could develop a new thing while I was learning to sing and play with the violin. Yes. And, and I learned to do that. Lose his skin is, I'm from Sandinista, is that. I learned to do that by having these three places to, to go and do. Sometimes I'd do one of them or two of them. Sometimes it would be three of them. And I just, I did that for a month. So by the time I came back, uh, and they were really encouraging. The German people were really so kind of encouraging. Um, they keep me on the stage, so I'd have to keep trying to work out new songs. <laughs> yes, that's um, yeah. And did you? I mean, there were quite a lot of people like Simon Fisher, Turner, and, and Colin Lloyd Tucker. Did did these people come into your kind of orbit at all? I didn't. I didn't know them, but the the name them they sound familiar to me. Yeah. But, I mean, it could be my memory, but I, there were so many people um, still on, you know, on, on that. Um, it was a folk thing, right? Because the folk clubs were relatively vibrant. Yes. And if you get a, a you know, a, a, a good folk club, say, Les Cousins in Hell's Court, or there was a bit of a half moon in Putney had quite a big thing. And they, they could get a, a fur crowd in. It might, it, even if there was only 20 people, or five or whatever, or it could go up to 60 or 100 people. But um, there was this, this whole thing where you go around, I remember seeing Elvis, he, he, was, he was calling himself D.P. Costello, 
So I did a few things, and he'd get up and play some songs as well. Um, and I, I just remember thinking, oh, that's kind of read edge, you know? Yes. I felt like I was coming more from the folky thing. Yeah. And um, I felt he was coming from the more... <laughs> the, the sort of, I just thought, oh, that's kind of like a Louis, Ed- Louis Reed edge he's got. Yes, absolutely. So you were, I mean, you always seemed to sort of attract, especially during the 70s, you were sort of sharing the house with Joe Strummer and then members of the sp- uh, uh, Slits, not the Splits. Um, yeah, well, they, they were, well, two of them, one of them was going out with Mick Jones and one of them was going out with Joe Strummer. Oh. And just after they split, the, the, um, the, the girls got, <laughs> they thought they'd have a go as well. And um, it was, uh, you know, they were, they were already friends, you know. They yes. were already friends of mine. Oh so did you, did the sort of the punk scene kind of interest you or were you just kind of also just, I don't know, it just well, breezed by? you know, I went to, I remember going around to 101, you know, the 101 as well. Oh, yes, the, yes. Before. And I took this song I'd written called Fuck Off You Bastard. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember I woke Joe up about half twelve at night. And, um, well, I woke him up, you know, I was surprised he was asleep, you know. And um, uh, he, he came into the kitchen and said, I want you to hear this song, Joe. I said, I, say, I think you, uh, this will be good for you and your band because you playing like Route 66 and this rock and roll thing. Because they, they were trying to be like Dr. Feelgood. Yes. Because they were the big the big London bands, you know, that were doing well. And um, I, I wrote this song, and, and I don't know, he took it slightly personal, you know, fuck off your bastard. But I said, you know, this will get you noticed, you know, this this sort of thing. And this was like maybe 874, yeah. you know, 75. It was before punk had got, got off. And um, he said, well, I think it's, it's got too many chords. We'd never manage them, you know. I mean, I only had about four. <laughs> but it, knowing him... He was very diplomatic. He probably just thought, I don't want to sing that. <laughs> but, so I was like pushing. I knew what was punk was already happening, say, in the corner of the Stonehenge Festival. Oh, There'd be yes. Somebody with a guitar playing basically punk songs. Yeah. Did you become, were you attracted to the, the festival scene with them, um, like... Oh, you mentioned him. Um, oh, Windsor, the Windsor, Windsor Free Festival with Wally. I Hunt. didn't actually go to that one. But did you go to Stonehenge? I didn't go to it. Did you go to? St- I, I was sitting at it because I'd, I'd been, I'd been given a grand piano, right, which yes. from um, uh, Sutherland Brothers and Quiver, who were across the road from from where I was. It wasn't really a squat. Or, or, or it, everything around us became a squat. But we had some sort of deal with a um, with a housing co-op, and we only had to find very little money, and we had to do up the place a bit and all that. Yes. But from that, the next the house next door, we squatted that, and we started squatting on these places. And 101 became one of those houses. Right. 101 Walterson Road. Yes. My God, that's amazing, isn't it? So as we trucked into the the 80s you know obviously 79 thatcher is you know elected and then we have the this you know there's the falkland war the miners strike 
Greenham Common, we all thought we were going to be nuked. And then you were coming out with the your next album, which is Battle of Wills, which has been Battle of Wills, yeah. reissued very recently. And this was um, on Dick O'Dell's wide label, wasn't it? So, um, yeah, yeah. So was this an album that you had started writing in the 70s or was this kind of... Yes, yeah, some of the songs from Battle of Wills um, were from the late 70s, once you know. I don't know how familiar you are with it. Uh, I have been listening uh, to it. Have you? Yes. Oh, good. Well done. <laughs> yes, I know. Um, Safeway people, no, I mean, we I love don't that. I that patronising, but I'm saying it's not an album. I meet many people who've, who've listened to it. And um, I was very pleased with it at the time, to be honest, because I, I, I had this sort of sound and getting tablets used. It's, and I was trying to keep away from... The, the sort of straight jacket of of the um, of the way you know bass drums and guitars and everything. Yes. So I was just trying to move away from that, and I'd obviously been inspired by people like um, I'd heard what uh, um, the Incredible String Band had done, yeah, and what various other people had done uh, in in the, in that sort of scene, and uh, I wanted to sort of work with that. And I was I was very interested in the texture of some of the Indian instruments, um, the sarangi, and uh, even there was no sarangi on there. And I was very interested in the way the tablas could um, could hold something together, like like a bass and drum sound. Yeah. And the guy, I went round and tried trying with loads of tabla players. You know, people who'd worked with uh, um, Pentangle and various other people in the pop rock world that had tabla player. And I couldn't get it to work with them. And then I got I went to the Bavan. It was a place in um in New Oxford Street and it was the the very traditional uh Indian place. And I got a number of this guy called um Mishra, M. Mishra, and he'd sort of worked with Ravi Shankar. He was the, the most kind of classical teacher. And I went around to his house uh, I think he was living somewhere like South or somewhere like that. I went around there, and I started up a song, and he just rocked off immediately. I mean, he's playing those tablas, right? There's, I don't think there's a, a click or anything. He even put, you know, the first track, Firefishes. Yes. He put those tablas on that violin after the violin was done. Wow. I didn't play to his tablas. He played that tablet to my violin that I'd recorded and said, can you play along with this? And there's no click, there's nothing. And off he went. <laughs> and and he could really, I don't know, he could just hold his backbeat. And that's what I was looking for. Um, so so we could use the sound of the tabla, but use the, the way that rock music is approached. I've got you. Yes, absolutely. That's um yeah that's um because this release that's just come out it never got a proper release at the time did it 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 sort of the, the... Well, well, uh, uh, what do you call it um uh, Y Records through yeah. Rough Trade got got it well it got well relatively well noticed you know got reviewed I don't think got any oh John Peel wouldn't 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 have anything to do with it he um... really suspected it I don't know why yeah but the people in Rough Trade said. I don't know what's going on, but he was like, just, you know, no, I don't want anything to do with that record. So, so they were, they said like, 
we we like it more now because <laughs> we we've we've found something that frees John Peel out. <laughs> nice, that's nice. And then John and then Joe heard about John Peel's reaction to it, so he then says next week in um, Enemy, John Peel's re- show is like a dog vomiting on your face. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So with this release that's just come out on. Um, the next, your new label that you're with, aren't Tiny you? Tiny Global. Tiny Global with John. This is going to have um, quite a few, it's got seven seven other songs, hasn't it, that have been unavailable. That These have been yeah, recorded. some taken from a gig I did in New York, because I turned up in New York in the early 80s. Oh, fantastic, yeah. I mean, if anybody young, um, I always say just go and do something, you know, and develop don't wait for, you're not in school anymore. You know, the, the thing is, this college mentality, that this X Factor type thing, you, you just get out there and, and get, a, get a survival t- way, get some way of, of, of just getting some gigs or whether you're doing street shows or something to develop. Because New York was like that. It was mm. still hanging on to this, um, this romanticism of, like Gerd's Folk City, there was The Bitter End, um, and then there was a lot of other gigs. And I did the same as I did in Berlin. I went round each one of them. Some some nights I'd do three auditions. Did you did you play places like, I don't know, um, Max's Kansas City or CBGB's? Yeah, I did there with CBGB's, yeah. I was doing everything. If, if I saw a light on behind her, <laughs> I had some really funny times, you know. I even did, I did a gig once, believe it or not. Um, uh, I did a gig and um, it, it was with uh, Quinton Crisp, right? So Quinton Crisp and me were a double bill. He was the top of the bill, obviously. Cause, and, um, uh, so I went on before to Quinton Crisp. <laughs> but there was things like that happening all the time. Another gig I was doing was... Um, Leonard Bernstein's daughter had a band of some, and, and he was there. And uh, I went on after her, and he was so drunk by the time I came on, right? I just remember his two legs <laughs> and arms <laughs> flailing around, you know, shouting, and I'm the Beatles! <laughs> <laughs> and they were carrying him out the door. Leonard Bernstein, and the, you know, I think that's New York, 1980, golden year in a the town was incredible. Yes, absolutely. Well, there was a there's a very interesting. Um, I think with their sort of post punk period, there was a lot more kind of African rhythms in a, uh, in the music because there was a label called Z Records, and there was also kind of avant garde jazz as well, wasn't there? Because there was bands like the Bush Tectras, and then there's James oh, Chance yes. and the Contortions. And when you listen to those kind of record, you know releases you know there's got very strong sort of rhythm guitar or very good percussion that had sort of african influences and um just lyrically as well they were a little bit more abstract than what you know the uk was doing at times so yeah there were some nice things going on and there was also uh lofts there was lofts that like, like there was one called a's arlene's yeah and she she'd put on so, so many shows you know so many people so say she come to a gig and see you on it and say, oh, will you do this on Thursday? Come on, play, um, uh, you know, half an hour or whatever. And then she'd have something else. It could be a fire eater coming on. Um, it was, and I just loved it, you know. And, and the people 
who you'd, you meet like um, Giorgio Gomelsky. Do you know who he is? He, he was um, now he was a sort of uh, institution of, of New York, and he came up to me after in, after he, I played in Arlene. He said, "Oh, would you like to do four? I've got put on four gigs with Nico. I think you'd go well on that." Nico, of course, I loved her work, particularly yes. Marble Index and um, Desert Shore. So she was one of the, you know one pe- person who I, I really, her and John Cale, I just thought were genius, and I just loved it. So when he said that to me, of course, I jumped at it, and I did the, you know, four gigs with her, and then accompanied her a bit on the violin. So, I, But that was New York. That was the, the vibe in New York. Was so, who, so who was that person, Giorgio? Gomelsky. Giorgio Gomelsky. I, 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 I wouldn't completely know how to spell it. Yeah, I know he had something to do with the Yardbirds. He produced the Yardbirds um, yes. for your love. Yeah. And he also had something to do with the Rolling Stones. Oh. He might have even been like one of their first managers or something. Yeah, because uh, I know there was a woman he, called Anna Magnuson. I think her name was her. She used to run a club in, in New York, which um, became very sort of famous. You know, Anna? Anna Magnuson, yes. Okay, well, where was she running her... Was it in, a, in an actual club or...? Yeah, um, she was a sort of... I know she starred in the film with David Bowie as well. I know this is not okay. good. I'll, re, I'll remember it once we finish. But, um, yeah, she was kind of one of those kind of movers and shakers of the kind of... Um, yeah, well, I think people still... They were they were sort of... It, it The internet wasn't there, so it, it had to happen either word of mouth or by you doing something. Yes. And I still do. I still believe that, though. I mean, I know younger people, I meet them and they say that. And I say, just do it. Just do something. Don't wait for something to happen from your computer or somewhere. Really do something because you need to work because that's, that's where you, work, you learn your craft. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And going on stage and learning, learning how to even get through a, a bad gig, because you're not going to do every gig good. Yeah. You've got to know how to survive everything. I know, you've got to. So she, was, she did a club called Club 57 and also the Mud Club as well, I think she was oh, involved Mud in. Oh, Mud Club. Yeah, I did Mud Club. Yeah, and she yeah, did. Yeah, yeah, that was good. They, they were great. Yeah, and I think she was also in a incredible thirteen piece women women's band as well in New York as well during that period as well, which I did an interview with one of the members quite recently. There was, I think, there was far too many people in one band. It didn't end well, but you could imagine. So when this release came out and it's being reissued, obviously. So, yeah, um, so what 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 happens next for you in the eighties? How do you navigate that next period? Well, the year after that. I, I I then went into the studio with Glyn Johns. Oh my God, he's uh, such a cool dude. <laughs> well, that was um, and uh, Joe um, was producing that record. Right. He, he asked Glyn Johns to 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 do this album, which has never been released. And John John Henderson of Tiny Global wants to put it out um, probably next year sometime. Wow, what so what just 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 pausing on that one. So you did a next album with Glenn Johns. Do you know what it's And Joe, yeah. And Joe. And what that's titled Hollowed Out. 
hollowed out, but we haven't yeah. got. But not so. Who's got the copy? Velvet Stella is from that. Bel, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard Velvet Stella. No. It was on a compilation um, that uh, Jerry Red put out. Oh, I have to check this out. This is very exciting, Velvet Stella. Um, Velvet Stella was recorded by Glyn Johns, and it was all done in one room, not right. the whole album. Velvet Stella, and me and Glyn Johns, you know, he he hadn't really come into. You know, he'd say, "Oh, that's good," and I'd say, "I don't think, I don't think it is. I don't think we, I think we need to do it again." And he'd say, "Look, I, you know, he didn't quite say I'm Glyn Johnson. You not know who I am, but I, <laughs> there was a little bit of saying, "Look, it's not. I know what's happening. This is not 1972 anymore. Right? Uh, we've got to make the, the the rhythm section a bit harder than that to get through. But now." When I listen to it now, I'm really glad. I'm really glad for what Glyn did. Yes. Because he was just saying, like, you know, he's just saying, look, it sounds great. And he wasn't quite saying, if I think it's good, it is good. But he more or less was. And I was sort of going, well, that's not good enough, Glyn, you know? Because then Glyn didn't really have an awful lot to do with the, the pop world for quite a while. Yes. Because I don't think he could make that jump into this um, mechanical era, like drum machines and computer sort of stuff. He was still, you know, he was a, he was a brilliant person who, who produced brilliant 60s music. Yes. But, I mean, why would you ever need to be anything else if, if you're doing that? I know. And actually, I found a few, quite a few people who have their zeitgeist moment in one period and one decade their next period is come t- sometimes quite, it's not quite so there, is it? It's a bit embarrassing. Well, Look- Glyn didn't want to. He didn't want to leave that. And he was quite right because he had his strong opinions of how he, he thought things should be. And he didn't want things to be, as it were, perfect. Yeah. He didn't see if, like, this is what happened to the Rolling Stones. Like, when he recorded the Rolling Stones, he just recorded them, right? Now, when somebody starts sort of putting Charlie on a kick track and sticking up, changing his snare for something else, you know, I've got all the Rolling Stones albums in one go on, you know, on CDs once, yeah. and I put them on and put them on, and then it got to a point where I thought, that swing is missing, that natural swing that Charlie and Keith seem to push along. And and we could feel we could feel and we trusted it, and suddenly it's gone. Yes, I know, I know, I know. There's been a lot of drummers I've interviewed who've had real problems of um, yeah, the click track. Really, they the... treated drummers terribly. I know. In, in, in the eighties, yes, because they had this machine, this Lindrum, and they say, look, the Lindrum's doing this, and you've gone slightly slow there, and you've gone slightly fast there. Um, this n- new band I'm working with in Spain, um, David, I hope I'm not going off into a tantrum, but... No, it's um, fine. and Dog and the Decoys. Um, we record, and Richard Judansky is playing the drums. He was the first one... Well, he was the one of one as drummer. Uh, there was another one on him, but he, he was the main one. So we go back a long time, and he also played drums on the Glyn John session. Right. This is amazing. Yes. And now we're working in a band together in Spain. <laughs> That's brilliant. Is this also possibly coming out on Tiny Global? 
Yes, it is. Uh, John John Henderson is 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 um, putting them all out. Well, so far he's put out that, and he's he's just got the uh, Granada sessions together. Nice. With, um, this has got Antonio Arias, uh, Juan Cordonio. These are musicians who work in Spain. They used to work with uh, Enrique Morente. Thank you. I know sounds like a long way. He was one of the foremost flamenco singers. But they, they did this rock thing. And um, so we've been working together. Antonio writes some of the songs and sings them because he's a relatively well-known artist in um, Spain. And um, But we're working very much like... Uh, like sixties, sixties teenagers, you know what I mean? We just go in and we start working on ideas, and we just make what we can out of them and and record them. Yes. And we don't we don't sort of think and and I, you know so we we've, we've got a record coming out and um, I want to get back there quite soon and um, and and start a new album of of so- new songs and get it just keep the thing going yes absolutely which is always you got to keep it going but then is your next album is this one called relentless or did you do an album before oh, the... relentless so sorry I'm, I'm, I'm shooting yes i did a song after um uh, after i did um battle of uh, wills battle of wills then i did the hollowed out yes which never got released uh, Glenn mixed it a bit soft in a way. I wasn't. I, w- I wanted to sort of change a few things on it, but then I decided to record an album with just the violin and voice, right? Simultaneously, with no overdubs. Yeah. And I did twelve tracks like that, and I did two sitting at the piano, but I didn't put any vocals on separately. Yeah. So what you hear on Relentless is actually happening. In a room at the same time, or that's it. Okay, that's amazing. Yes, so very live and direct. No, well, I was sort of into this sort of stripping things right down to to do just got the bone of it, and the song had to stand there, and yet the sound, of course, one violin and and a voice, just just that's it, and then all these these songs, and they're not. They're not folk songs, really. So it was, it was just a yeah. I, again, I wasn't sure I liked it at the end of it because <laughs> it's a little bit, it's a little bit like you know, it's very intense, really. I mean, the lyrics were very intense. Yes, but they're just really intense. It's intense stuff. It it's totally uncompromised, um, and um, I'll probably go back. In fact, on the Granada sessions, I do. Uh, one of the songs from that album, um, One of Relentless, I've re-recorded it with the band. It's a song called I Don't Want to Be Poor. <laughs> and uh, that was my my feeling about things at the time. Well, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I like doing what I want, but I didn't like being poor. <laughs> no, this is, this is what... Um... This, is, this is really difficult to... To, uh, to get those two things together. I know. To do exactly what you want and uh, not have an audience and uh, sort of um, still kind of keep going. So when do you join Joe's, Joe Strummer's band? When does that begin? Well, 
that was in 2000. Right, so there's quite a big jump there, isn't there? Oh, yeah, I hadn't seen him for about 15 years. Blimey. Years. Yes, I've got you. So what, before then, <laughs> before that, do you, are you still putting out, there's the wave, a wave of dreams, is that your next? Yeah, that came out later, that came out just a few, couple of years ago. Right. Uh, because um, Susan, my wife, is, um, she's um, uh, translated a lot of surrealist French stuff. Yes. Poetry. So I, uh, she said, would it be interesting doing a soundscape with these? So I did some live soundscapes behind that. And I also uh, worked, I did some songs with um, my well, my first wife, I've only got that too. And um, and we we did some work at the time in the early 80s, not, not far from around Battle of Wills. I was working with Malcolm McLaren. Oh, blimey. He, he was, you know, you know Malcolm McCann. Yes. Um, and he was get, he was sort of trying to open the thing to a lot of different ways. And he, he was very interested in all sorts of folk music. And he was a very inspiring person at that time. And um, so I, I enjoyed that connection. In fact, some of the tracks, uh, I remember finishing uh, once, you know, and calling around to his house at one o'clock in the morning, right? Uh, he was living um, just on Arabin Road. And um, I went straight round there and went in, because that was the kind of person he was, you know. He'd sort of like, oh, yeah, you come around and say, I want you to hear this, Malcolm. And I'd stick it on and it'd be, I'd say, listen to this tabla. And he'd go, oh, that's good, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, a, it was very creative. And Malcolm could, if you, if you kind of were willing to learn, if you don't, if, he, can, he could destroy you very quickly, Malcolm. Right. When I started working with a few other people, I could see they found it. it they found it hard going. Yes, because he, he just sort of was like, he was he, he was like a, a sort of um, uh, sort of gremlin, you know. <laughs> and it, it was great while things are moving, but there was always that little bit of mischief happening in him. Yes, and you had to. You had. He, he wanted you to compete with his mischief. That's why. That's the way I saw it, you know. I could imagine. And, um, but he, but he was great. He played play something. Say, I remember this guy, P.O.D. Peach, you know. And so, well, who is he? And he'd be some West Virginian guy, you know, who was doing something from some, I don't know, some of the places in, in America. And he say, and I go, yeah, well, what is that? And he'd be like, you know, real hillbilly music. He go, I like to make this hip. <laughs> <laughs> Nice, very good. And the other thing he had, which I'd never heard before, was South South African music. He he had Soweto music way before uh, Paul Simon did uh, Graceland. Yes, he had all that stuff. He'd been to South America, South Africa, and he'd come back with a pile of these records, and they blew me away when I heard them. The the, the whole approach, the way they they um, they took on rock music. And the way the bass played, right, really central. And I remember reading um, an interview with with uh, Paul Simon, and he said when he heard the Sueto music, it was a bit like hearing R and B for the first time, because there was something very special about the way these Sueto musicians were playing this music. Amazing. But Malcolm was way on it when he got there. 
he said he'd go around looking for the musicians and some of them would be living like virtual tramps or they thought, you know, well, he's, uh, you know he's been uh, on the bottle for three years. You're not going to get much out of him. But he'd, he'd take him in. He, he did do some okay duck rock he did with them. I don't know if you heard that at all. No, I do remember a couple of his kind of 80s kind of... Well, he, he sort of put into... This is typical. Malcolm had some great stuff and then he didn't know when to stop. So then he got Trevor Horn involved and he got the some some um, uh, some New York rapper guys, and it he, he, he just all tippled over, you know. So he didn't know where he was in the end. I remember he he called us and he said, "God, come and listen to the album in the studio." And I went in there and I thought, well, you know, it, it was like some of it's great and some of it was what the hell is going on? And then these rappers talking through it and everything, like through the tracks. He was just trying to get everything, like a, like somebody wants a soup with everything in it. Yes, tricky, tricky bit. So was that your next release then, as we trundled on a little bit more, Made of Light? Was that would have been... I did that in 2015. Right, so you... that was something I did in my own studio. And that was, you know, songs I'd done. And, um, you know, I was sort of... Going in, yeah, just overdubbing a few things. I had one drummer come in and play on one song. Did did you hear that at all, David? Yes, I've had a listen and it's been, you know, inspiring. Very nice indeed. Well, you know, when I listen to... When I hear that, I mean, Time for Moving On was good. I I enjoyed that, um, doing that. Liam played the drums on it. Um, And there's a, you know, I I just do a song and I, I just sort of go for it. Of course, because I can play the piano, I can play the, the guitar, and I can play instruments, and I can put together things by overdubbing a few, and being able to play violin and viola and that. Yes. Uh, I, can, I can make it something um, into quite a record. Um, I'm saying, um, but when I play Made of Light, uh, live just on the guitar just on spanish guitar i think it's better right that's my feeling now i my feeling is um i i I don't know i just sort of i like that sort of thing where the 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 song really stands there almost not quite on its own but um so i I tend to react like that so after doing a, a record one way I sort of feel like I now I want to do something a lot more naked. <laughs> nice, that's very good. <laughs> Did, but before but, you brought out Made of Light, this is be you'd already joined Joe Joe's drummer at this point, hadn't you? Well, I did. I did. That, um, I did really just one album with him because I turned up at a gig he was doing the Poetry Olympics, and um, uh, I went on stage with him because he he actually was just him and the percussionist, and he, and because I had my violin. It, 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 a year before that, I'd, I'd gone somewhere, and um, I'd made him go off and get a guitar, because it was a friend of ours had died, a bass player who played in the one um, of and he turned up at, um, I think it was Acklam Hall, uh, and I said, aren't you going to play? And he said, well, I haven't got a guitar, no. and I said, well, I've got my violin. So I said, we've got to do something. 
So, uh, you know, you go and get guitar, and, and I'll, I'll, I said to him, I'll, I'll, I'll compose a song, you know. Um, I'll just do it. We'll do it now. You, you just can back it. Yes. And um, anyway, once we got going, I looked to the side of me, right? <laughs> and it was like back when, when he first started, you know, joining in. And he was belting away. <laughs> and that was... So next time I saw him, he was saying, oh, have you got your violin? And I said, well, I owe you a gig because, you know, you played last time, you know, at my sort of request. And um, so I went off and got it, and, and we played the uh, Poetry Olympics. And I think we played every gig. I don't think he did another one that we didn't do together because he came off stage. And Martin Carthy, the, the folk oh, yes. legend, was there as well. And I said to him, um, you know, I introduced him to Joe. And Joe said, would you mind, do you want to join us? So he said, yeah. So we wrote out some chords for him. And he, he, I had some chords that he had because I didn't know what we were going to do. And um, and Lily Allen, Lily Allen, the singer, yes. she was there with her dad. And that, I think that was the first performance she ever did. And she was doing backing vocals on a song as well. So that was... That was our first gig at the Mescaleros. A few days later, he called me and said, um, do you want to come down to the studio? And so I went down there, and five days later, we had half an album done. Two days after that, or maybe it was a week after, the Who tour was on, and, I, and he said, I'm going to blow out the Who tour so we don't stop, so we just carry on playing, we carry on writing, because we've done a song a day. Uh, I mean, from scratch, we'd written it, and he, he, then he could write the lyrics. And, you know, we were just very creative. We were, we were sleeping in the studio. It was just like, you know, just really, just really great fun. Yes. And um, he said, I want to blow out the Who Tour. And for me, somebody's saying, I'm going to blow out sort of, you know, the, the Dock, Docklands and Wembley Arena. And I said, no, Joe. I said, look, um, I don't think maybe you should blow this tour out. I said, how about this? Instead of just going off, he said, I'm blowing out because it'll interrupt us working and they haven't given us enough free tickets. <laughs> 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 so, so I said, look, how about this? We go on the tour, but we play all these new songs we've just done. We just, that's it. And we don't play, you know, all the things they expect you. Maybe after about seven songs, you can do a, I rock the Casper or something. So he, he sort of mulls his over and then goes, all right, well, we start with, at the time, we've had this 21-minute, I don't you ever heard of Mescalos, but it finishes with a 21-minute doodling around with me on the violin. Is this right. Minstrel Boy? Yes, Minstrel Boy. Right. Anyway, this, this is a story on its own. It says, okay, we'll do that time, and, but we'll start with that one. <laughs> Excellent. So I thought, well, I better cut it down a bit. I mean, so he's going. I said, well, okay. So I, I, I sort of cut it down to about seven minutes, so we could do it. There wasn't any singing on it. Uh, they did. We did do one with a vocal for a Black Hawk Down some about a year later. So that was how we we developed the the Mescaleros, the new Mescaleros, as it were. Yeah, and this is the album Global Agogo, isn't it? Global Go, Global Go Go was really us 
revisiting. We did it round the corner from where we used to live. We used to live in Halston. Yeah. In 1970, 71, 72. And the studio, battery studio, was just down the road in Wilston. <coughs> and um, we did this thing, this the record there. So we were kind of back being sort of late teens, early 20s people, you know, in our heads. Mm, yes. But then when that album and you know, that, that date had gone, or dates, did you then, you didn't want to continue with that project? Who? With Joe and the Mascaleras. Well, it was difficult because it, it got very well received and we had some big film things taken, you know, yeah. from it. And it, it was very difficult because there was a lot of different energies moving. For instance, most of the other Mascaleros had just come off from working with Robbie Williams. Right. Okay? Which in itself, you know, Robbie Williams has done some good stuff, particularly like Feel... Um, but the thing is, the energies was different, and they they didn't really know what me and Joe were up to half the time. I mean, and then I've, you know, just to give you an example, I find out I went to school with one of their fathers. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so the 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 thing of generations and values and stuff, and it was hard for them because they they sometimes thought Joe was wacky and eccentric and, and really weird, you know. But because he, he was the boss and he was paying their, their wages, they'd sort of think, oh, well, we, we, can, we can take how weird we think Joe is out on time, and, you know. And, it, it, so, and then Joe would get sort of kind of take umbrage to thinking, what, what, who do they think they're, how do they think they're doing things, you know. Yes. And then all my work started being the stuff that was making money. It's all the stuff in the film, Mondo Bongo. Um, well, that minstrel boy that you know was used for, uh, I think that's some telephone advert used a minute of it, and it's just, it's just. I was playing the the song, you know, because um, he wanted to do that with the Clash minstrel boy, and uh, it had gone on for a long time. That was so, sort of um, nearly twenty years later, it crops up again. And um, we went back to the studio when we were going to leave and we were sitting in a bar and he goes, oh, let's go back and do it now. I said, what, half one in the morning? He said, yeah. And the engineer was there and he went back. He had the drum loop. He knew it was going to be a 3-4. So he put that on and I just played away on the violin and just tootling around and played the tune for a while and thought, God, I'm bored now. <laughs> <laughs> and I went into a whole thing I used to do years ago when I was learning to play the violin, just making up these 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 little tunes and sevenths and stuff like that. I never thought for a second any of it would ever be used. <laughs> God, that would be fantastic. <laughs> I thought we were just putting off going home. I thought nothing else. <laughs> yes. So then, sort of after that kind of project, then, and obviously we mentioned Made of Light, have you just always been sort of working on sort of musical projects? Yes. Like now I'm, I'm working on some new songs I've got. Um, and um, that, that's, yes, I, I've been doing that since I was about 15. Yes, absolutely. And have you managed to keep an, uh, a track of your amazing archive and, and all the pieces you've done? 
No. <laughs> I think that I think that's why John at Tiny Global, John Henderson, wants to sort of go. He said, "Listen, you you know he wants to sort of get get some stuff done." But and I'm not, and I appreciate that. That's really good. Um, and my wife Susan is looking at that. But for me personally, it, it, I'm not sort of dragging around sort of a sort of legacy. Yes. Um, not, you know, okay, I, I don't think it's that much, as a, certainly not as a success one, but even as, as, as a, 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 the work, the fact I've, I have survived and the fact I'm going to do new songs and new records, God willing, God high hope, yes. <laughs> is, is for me a fantastic, uh, I, I, I just really enjoy that sort of thing and, I, I had a break in, in my shoulder a couple of months ago. It was just something I fell on something, and it, and uh, I, I couldn't play, you know, so I had to sort of not do some things. And I, I sort of brought it home to me how to be able to do something is is such an incredible um, privilege. Yet is, but it is fantastic, and... Um, Doing something is, is in a way, its own reward. Of course, you need some dosh. Yes. You need some food, and you need a, you know something. I'm not trying to say people who you know who, who, who are ambitious. That's that is very good, and it, it's sometimes a very good thing if a very ambitious person works with somebody who's a half in the clouds. You know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> I mean they're a good combination because if you just have naked ambition. It's pretty horrible, and if you just have, you know, somebody, you know, dreaming away, um, nothing's going to get done. No, this is true. It's and, and probably bad. No editing. We need good editing at times, don't you? Really. So yeah, you're going to have to edit this interview, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's so you're going to have to make make this interesting for somebody who you know has got a lot to do. You know, they've got a lot. I mean, a, per, a person's life has so many options and so many things and and it is such an incredible things i i one of the things i i felt very strongly about um at some point in is wasting anybody's time seemed to be a really i didn't ever want to do that yes you know i realized that okay so you're trying to get hit record but is, is it any good for yourself or anybody else okay you can you're going to make some money maybe and you're going to get a big swelled head. But other than that, what else is going to happen? Um, the survival thing was important, and it was very important for, for Joe as well. Keeping the band going and on the road, uh, the Mescaleros, yes. was very important for him at the end. And I was very pleased that I could contribute to those, to those songs, uh, because by that time, I'd learned to appreciate um, one the about two weeks before he died. I I said to him, um, you know, you've written some good lyrics, Joe. And it's the first time I'd ever told him that. And he went, oh, thanks, you know. So I felt a bit like, you know, somebody because I'd never really sort of. I just thought, okay, because I was the one who had the paper bags full of lyrics when he met me. Yes, and I was the person who was doing this art form and had been doing it a long time. And he was um, 
an artist in the sense of school of art. So he was he was sort of like working out really how to do that. And it was me who said to him, you know, you look, you've got to write some songs for the one on one. You can't you can't write you can't just sing fifties and sixties covers. Um, and he was a bit shocked that he was thinking, what me? Me writes a song. I said, yeah, because he was brilliant with he was brilliant with words. He's a great cartoonist and fantastic. He had so many qualities to his character. Um, I, I just knew there was a lot in, you know, a lot of things he could do, and um, and then he started writing his songs and and uh, yeah, it, 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 it look what he did. He did some great stuff. Yes, absolutely, stunning. But um, I mean, what's the Some people I meet, I mean, they say, oh, I didn't particularly like the Clash, you know, because they liked other other bands, and but. Um, there was, you know, there was, there was a sort of, there was a humour and a, a sort of way of l- looking at things and I, ideology that I think the Clash did work with. And it took me a while because I, at first I thought, oh, they're just trying to make it and that. But it, it took me a while to, you know, appreciate them. It's like Mick once said to me, he said, well, I'm glad I did the Clash because if I... I hadn't, I might have done something a lot worse. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's a good one. Anyway, Dave, listen, um, I'm sure you, you're going to have to do a bit of... You know, you've got a, good pair, a big pair of scissors. <laughs> yes. Well, look, that's, this has been phenomenal, and I'm really excited. I mean, I've enjoyed listening to all these, in, you know... A musical kind of uh, journey back in your back catalogue, but the most important thing, you've got new material, which is also more it's exciting. It's a future. <laughs> yeah, we've got to go for the future, haven't we, really? We're all still so young. But look, have a lovely time, and thank you for this time, uh, for your time for this. This has been amazing. Uh, uh, thanks, Dave, David. I hope I, I can... I wonder, I'm interested in, in, this, in your show and what you're actually doing, because from the few things I've heard of the songs and that, it started me thinking... Yeah, this is, I mean, rock music has a certain things and certain types of things, but the sort of thing that you're doing doesn't really have a clear space, but it's always been there, like the Who would do their songs, and then there might be something that had, I'm trying to think of something on Who's Next, uh, or or um, Who Sell Out. Who Sell Out was definitely the one which was the... That there was some song, and it was that kind of, I know they say oh, it's like you're, you know it's a jangly indie pop thing, but there is something very special about that. And it used to come in sometimes, like um, in the Clash, someone got murdered, or where it's a sort of way that the minors and the majors blend, and the, and the Beatles obviously had a big pile of it. Yes, absolutely. But but, but this thing is is a particular, it's a particular thing. That um, uh, there is, it can easily get lost because it's 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 quite a subtle thing. Yes, we love subtle. We love those kind of moments between between the obvious. That's always a good. But I think someone's chiming in the background actually with your. That's your, my mobile. It's <laughs> your mobile. Well, look, to, and and just to, to make sure, it is Timon, is it? Timon. Timon, yeah. Timon dog. There you go. There you go. But I'll let you rock on for that. And look, I'm thank going, you. No, it's gone now. Oh, it's gone now. Okay. Well, look. Look these mobile things. I know. Well, they can so, interrupt you any, anywhere, anytime. And so late. 
Gosh, it's really anyway, but, David. Look, but anyway, thanks for well, thanks for your work with music. All right. Yes. Well, we love it, and um, yes, thank you for your time, <laughs> well, and know, yeah, and good luck know, with this. Without people like you and John Henderson and people who have such an. In- I don't, do you play any music yourself? No, unfortunately, that was something that never quite came onto my radar. But um, yeah, um, but I mean, what world do you be without the? Where would the voice be without the ear? Yes, this is true. This is what I say all the time. <laughs> but look, this is great. <laughs> all right. Take care. Thanks again. See you, David. Take care. Cheers. Thank and you. Keep, I'm going to follow your shows now. Yes, and, and have a listen to some more of my interviews. They're always fun. Yes, okay. we will do. Take care. All Thanks right. a lot. Take, bye-bye. Bye. 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 And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview, you probably guessed. But a massive thank you to Time and Dog, also Stephen John Murray, talking about his life in music. And as I mentioned, and I will put this link, put this link in the notes below, he has got the album from 1982 available from Tiny Global Records. That is Battle of Wheels. Expanded edition, it's true. Anyway, this has been the CD6 show, David Eastor. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do CD6 show. And also, all these have been archived interviews on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, it's true. Have a great week, stay safe.